Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of The Lanyard. Each week I love to talk to somebody who's creating a cool company or a cool community. We've hit both marks again today with Will Bushy out of Sioux Falls. He spent a lot of time building up coding camps for kids. He's devoted a ton of time to building entrepreneurial systems and communities throughout the area. But he's also been involved in data mining and some really cool companies. So we're going to talk about that starting right now. Will Bushy, thanks for coming down on this spring day. You were over here at One Million Cups this morning, and the technology didn't work. You're a technology guy, so there was no live stream today. So if you missed Will Bushy's presentation at One Million Cups, you get a full hour with him here today. Thanks for coming. Oh, absolutely. Well, that might have worked out for the best, because since there was no permanent record, I could talk about anything. <laughs> absolutely. So... You came in here, you've got what looks to be like a box of candy, but uh, right. it looks like it's also wired up with some buttons. So this says Whitman's uh, assorted chocolates, and then there's four plastic buttons on there. What have you built? Yeah, the, the candy's long since gone, but this is a Simon Says game. Oh, <laughs> and you built it yourself. I did. So I've got a project called Haxu Falls where we teach kids how to build things with electronics and microcontrollers. And this is the latest project. We're having kids rebuild the Simon Says game. Oh, that's cool. And I, what I like about it is the, the repurposing and, and cool packaging of that. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not... Uh, like a polished 3D printed thing. Yes. It's, it literally is a box that I drilled holes in and put some <laughs> buttons in. But that's all part of the plan of the project because I want kids to bring their own creativity. So I could create boxes or print boxes or buy boxes and say, well, we're just going to go step by step and build this. But that's not that interesting. Yeah. I want them to bring their own creativity to it, whether it's a new box or a different functionality. And I was really hoping some of the kids would want to build their own type of a game, not just Simon Says, mm -hmm. because I kept that open. So far, everybody's been been interested in just building Simon Says. But there's so many opportunities, right? You got four buttons. I mean, you could build, you could create your own game. You could make something up. Right. Absolutely. How does Simon Says work again? Well, Simon Says is just remembering the pattern. So it yeah. blinks. Uh, so, for example, it might blink red and you have to press red and then it'll blink two numbers you know, or two colors, red and green, and then you have to do it you in have order. You to tap it back. Exactly. You have to follow what Simon says. So do you have some sort of uh, alarm or error if you don't follow the pattern or does it just kind of... Does it beeps uh, just like the original did when the lights light up and then when you press them it beeps and then if you get it wrong it'll give you kind of a, an error beep 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 and then it'll start over with a little bit of a kind of a chime at the beginning. Excellent. Well, so I I was just talking to my my general manager Brooke Thury downstairs and she said that she got to catch your one million cups presentation this morning and some of the things we talked about she just was amazed at all the projects you're involved in about all the things that you've just tried. She talked about the, the Amazon um, viral video. She talked about uh, um, the garage door sensors and all of the camps that you're involved in and you know, Market Beat, which is basically a preview of what we're going to talk about today. But before we get into those topics, I thought we should start with where it began. And let's talk about high school. Oh, sure. So tell me about going way back. Yeah, your interest in technology back then. Did you know that that's what you wanted to do for a living is to be involved in technology? Yeah, well, during high school, definitely not. I mean, I'm old enough now to where our our school barely had computer labs. I mean, they got them while I was in high school. And the earth science teacher was the quote computer teacher. Mm -hmm. And he was also the coach. He was a way better coach than computer teacher. Uh, and this was, I believe, my... Um, junior year when they first offered a computer class and it sounded interesting i did not have any background we didn't have a computer at home so i thought it was interesting to see I mean, well i'll take it and uh, it's better than whatever else i was going to take usually i would say within two weeks or three weeks of that class it was pretty clear that i already knew more than he knew and there was a couple of us that just understood technology and he's like all right i'm out you guys you guys do what you want the rest of the semester and just kind of let us go at it. And we were, there were old Apple computers and we, um, we just built some real interesting kind of games at the time, things with a, a basic program. That was all that was available. And it kind of started from there. And I, I just thought that was real fascinating. Uh, right before that, the Casio calculators with the graphing screen had come out and most of the kids were just typing in notes into the program area so they could cheat on tests. And I thought, well, but there's a whole programming language here. And I'd never programmed anything before. 
And I, I read the book cover to cover. This was back when they would print out all the commands. And, and I just found it fascinating. And I started to build kind of some displays and maybe light video games, kind of like um, the one I remember was a battleship type game that I created where you could guess where the positions were. And then you could have real uh, simplistic in today's standard graphics displays. But that's kind of where my interest in technology started somewhere around that sophomore, junior year of high school. So it kind of makes me think that the reason you were better at technology or, or understood it, the reason you were better than your teacher was probably because you were of a generation that when you pushed buttons and when you explored the capabilities, you weren't worried about it breaking. It seemed like our parents and the older generations, mm-hmm. they were they didn't explore anything other than the task they wanted to get done because they worried that this three thousand four thousand dollar machine was going to be broken whereas you probably tried every single menu every command every function that was available no you're absolutely right and like you said the my generation or the kids around my age that was absolutely the case where in a way it was fearlessness yeah and we just wanted to explore and and i do see i I work with some people that are a generation older than me that i've worked with for years and they still have that same philosophy you know, they'll ask me technical questions like, how do I do X? I'm like, I don't know. Just start pushing buttons until it does what you want it to do and go from there as mm-hmm. opposed to trying to find a manual or trying to look something up. Yeah. What's the worst that can happen? You know, I, I think that's how we viewed it. So when did the Internet come to your life? Was it when you were in high school? Did you have a computer lab with the Internet? So the first I bought my first computer when I was I think it was a senior or junior in high school. What'd you buy and how much did it cost? It was thirteen hundred dollars. It was uh, one of the Tandys. I don't remember the exact model. I tried to look that up a while ago and I could never find the exact model that I bought. So it must have been one of the ones that was just limited edition. But I bought it from Radio Shack in town. I changed irrigation pipes. That's something we don't do here in South Dakota, but huge in Montana. Ten cents a pipe, twice a day. It's a lot of pipes. Earned $1,300. <laughs> yes. And I, and I bought it. My parents just didn't know why. I mean, like, why do you want to spend that much money on a computer? And I honestly didn't know either. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I only had one friend that had a computer. Word processing, right? right you, word you, pro- you, my my, my uh, documents for school will look very pretty. Yes. <laughs> but I, I bought it and I, I just began to explore and did all kinds of... Um, just figured everything out about that computer. Of course, this was before hard drives too. So it was the the floppy disk and the few friends you did have. You'd copy programs back and forth and, and try to, to figure out how things worked. And this was long before the internet was popular. We did have some bulletin board services in the town, but uh, there wasn't a lot to be learned. Really, honestly, I never got into the internet until much later on. I mean, there just simply wasn't a thing when I was in high school. It was probably... Um, 2000 or I mean 94 95 before I even had things like an email address I was wondering if I could move that phone it might be giving us a little bit of feedback there thanks I don't know if that's the case but occasionally I get some technology which is what we're here talking about that will interfere with my my microphones Um, so the internet then what did that look like for you when you got on it what were the possibilities of that did that mean something to you well, it did. And I, I got on through work and it wasn't something that people really had at home anyway. And at the time I was working for a company out in Washington, D.C. It was a, a kind of an umbrella company for nonprofits in the energy space. And people were just starting to build websites and they just were starting to get that on quote online presence through. I think we were using I think it was AOL at the time in order to get to the Internet. And because I was the young guy and understood technology and could fix their printers when they didn't work, they said, you know, why don't you build a web page for one of these organizations? And so at the time, I just started to figure out what that even meant and started to build web pages. And at the time, it was manual indexes of things like Yahoo. So it wasn't very big at all and just kind of continued to grow. And I remember spending you know a lot of time in the evenings just kind of clicking around on what was available. But you look back at it now, and I mean, almost nothing was available then. Oh, no. Uh, you know, so you had, you probably played around in GeoCities and Tripod, <laughs> like, and you had uh, animated GIFs. And, yep, uh, lots of GIFs. And, See, those made a comeback. Oh, they sure did. My gosh. It's like, here's a, here's a $2,000 new phone, and uh, our big advancement is we've got... <laughs> new gifts (laughs) more room for gifts yeah absolutely so um college then what did you major in yeah so i skipped college 
You did not go to college. I did not go to college. How about that? I, you know, I don't hear that often, and I, I kind of have a soft spot in my heart for that because my path was uh, graduated high school early, got the, a big scholarship to Augie, and quit after mm-hmm. a year and no degree. So I don't often run into people who can, can I guess, I don't know if it's a brag, but kind of say like, yeah, I've, I've figured it out and I don't have a degree. Yeah, I know uh, it just was one of those things where you just didn't have the money and the resources to do it. I didn't have any scholarships of any kind. I, leading up to graduating high school, I kind of figured I would go do something. But then when the time came, you know, I got accepted to a couple of universities. But I mean, just didn't have the money. And yeah. uh, it's like, all right, well, I'll just go work for a while and kind of see where it goes, what goes on after that. I already was pretty good in in technology and programming. I'd written a number of programs at that point. Uh, I just understood how technology worked and through um, a job that I had at the time, a a guy offered me a job and said, hey, I'd like you to, I got this program that we've been working on. I'm not really a programmer. I think you'd probably be good at it. And so he hired me and I worked for for him for about a year and a half on this program. So here I am writing code with with no real experience behind it. But then again, it was a language that nobody really knew about anyway. So it wasn't like you were going to find somebody that was skilled in that technology to write it. Uh, so it worked out really well. Just kind of a lot of thinking around. It was a modeling program for electric utility companies. So I know that you worked for a company called Bright Planet. Mm-hmm. You still have some ties to it today. We'll talk about that more. Sure. But like, for instance, working for a company that long, did you ever find any problems or resistance about you not? I mean, you had a career, so you didn't need the degree, but you probably had some teaching opportunities along the way. Did the degree and the lack thereof ever come back to haunt you? No, I, I was pretty fortunate that it, it didn't, but uh, it could have for mm-hmm. sure. I, I My entire career, I've always worked for small businesses, like mega small, like yeah. two to five people. Uh, never anything big where you have that same pressure in politics. But even, you know, so we jump ahead a little bit. Uh, that same guy started a company called Visual Metrics. And I went to work for him when he first started that company. So he knew me beforehand and he knew I didn't have a degree. And he brought in a number of what would be considered more senior developers. Um, A little bit older, had degrees, had worked for Gateway for a number of years. And they were uh, not insistent, but they really thought that I should get more education. Yeah. And maybe not necessarily a degree, but, you know, go to school. So I did uh, attend a few classes at USD. Uh, but honestly, it just simply wasn't worth my time and effort yeah. because at that point in my career, I already knew everything that they were going to be teaching and just the way the university system starts out, you have to start at the beginning. I can't jump to graduate level classes and say, well, I'm here. And so it turned out to be kind of a little bit of a waste of my yeah. time. And then I never really pursued that. And I, I've never been one that is good at kind of that schooling, mm-hmm. uh, much more hands-on, take stuff apart. Yeah, I was just too figure uh, things out. I was just too impatient, you know. Yeah. I was like, we're gonna get to the payoff here in a while and I can go work and get to that payoff like now. Right. <laughs> it was one thing that was interesting too when I was when I, I guess there was a I did something called an entrepreneur in residency mm-hmm. at the University of South Dakota for oh, I think it was two years. And at one point they had approached me and they said, All right, well, as we build out this entrepreneurial program, you know, we'd like to get you in the classroom a little more. And, you know, because we're accredited, like we just got to ask, you have your master's, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I don't have <laughs> a degree, like a, right. a, you know, bachelor's. And they're like, oh, that, oh, that, so we can't put you in the classroom. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. like, uh, well, you guys wanted me over here as an entrepreneur in residence for a reason. Yeah. But, uh, of course, I understand how accreditation works. So, Yeah. Yeah. And it, like I said, it never really directly impacted my career path because I yeah. always worked for, for small companies or people that I knew and they knew what I could do and move forward. Uh, but you're right. It, it, it has affected things that maybe were external to that. Yeah. Like, um, in the same kind of context, you know, I, I, I'm limited on what I could do with DSU, for example, because of that same constraint. Exactly. And it's just across the board. But, right. you know, it's fine. I'm just going to go do my stuff. And if they want to yeah. join me, awesome. <laughs> All right. So um, the company that you'd started doing some programming for early on, mm-hmm. what was that company? Well, um, so I'll jump ahead probably to, to just the visual metrics days. And these were, this was late 90s. And uh, the same guy I worked through right after high school had started that company. His wife 
was a, she moved from Montana to Vermilion to teach at USD. And that company was called Visual Metrics and we were gonna ride the data warehousing uh, the stuff that was just coming online. Yeah. Uh, how do we process large amounts of data? And we were using a language that was not readily known and we'd bought some of the, we'd bought into the technology. And so I, I came in as a developer and started just working and we built out a whole user interface because it was all command line driven before. We built out a couple of applications, ran through some seed capital, but we weren't really able to, to kind of turn that around to make that into a profitable business. We did a, a couple of grant programs as well. And then that, pro, that company eventually uh, joined up with uh, another company in Sioux Falls to create Bright Planet, which is where that came about originally. And then all the employees kind of transitioned over to Bright Planet somewhere around like 2000, 2001. And so when we talk about data from somebody who doesn't understand that, I mean, it's hard to even say conceptualize what data means. I mean, I think about, okay, I have transactions here at the bar. I collect data on that. Now I yes. have a Facebook profile and I say that I've read this book and I've liked this page that creates a set of data. So what kind of data were you warehousing and that you were trying to help people analyze? Well, yeah, excellent. Now at the time, none of that data even existed because there were no online transactions. Yeah, right. no, and, and there was no Facebook yet. There was no Facebook. And there also wasn't the, the point of sale system that we have today. Mm. So the data we were actually messing with was more um, like archival type data, like how many cars were sold that year or, you know, how many people had televisions in their home. So it was kind of the big, uh, a lot like of census. census type stuff. Yeah. There was some census data, but then it also would be businesses that might have that content internally that they needed to try to make some forecasts on or to make some sense of. And you, know, you look back at it, you know, at the time, a few hundred thousand rows of data was a tremendous amount of data. Uh, nowadays, that's nothing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would process that on process that on a phone. I mean, there's just nothing to uh, to doing. The, the scales are so much bigger nowadays than they were back then. But it was a huge problem back then because if you did have, say, you ran a business for for five years and you had sales data for five years, that was hard to process. Yeah, and and it seems weird because again, if you haven't been in a position running a business, you you think, well, what's what's the matter? I'm going to deal with my business today, but you need that data to make intelligent decisions about right. your business and where it's going. So you were helping provide a solution for that, and I imagine there were competitors in that space too. Uh, just some small guys like Oracle. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> so Larry Ellison goes on to become like second richest right. man in the world, and and you guys the same, right? Uh, no, we oh. didn't. We took a different path. <laughs> what, what what was the different path, and why did why did Oracle blow up and you guys didn't? Yeah, I mean, just fundamentally, it just comes down to Is technology. It because you were in South Dakota. It was not because we were in South Dakota. <laughs> it just comes down to technology and you know who had the bigger resources at the time and the yeah. the you know the bigger sales. You know, we just simply weren't able to to make enough money to get the technology running. And he did have a little bit more of a head start. And and I, you know, just Oracle's just one example. There were a lot of companies at that time that were coming out. We were just one of many, and we just never really hit a, a sweet spot where we were able to get enough clients to make sense to continue to move the technology. And that's when the internet was starting to blow up. And that's where we started to see some opportunities on what's called unstructured data. So everything we've been talking about, I would classify as structured data. We have rows and you think of it as rows and columns in a database. Well, now if you start to look at unstructured data, like a web page or uh, maybe a PDF file, there was no way at the time to do anything with that data. Like you could put it into a row in a, in a Oracle database, but you couldn't do anything with the content. And so that's where we started to shift because we thought there was going to be a big opportunity around unstructured content. And that's where Bright Planet came in is now that we wanted is to data mining. Exactly right. So how we saw the internet continuing to expand and grow more and more websites were coming on board the way to find that data was becoming more difficult. And if you were a researcher, you knew there was a vast amount of content out there, but you just had no way of finding it. So we started to develop a couple of products early on that would harvest and collect that data from the internet and then be able to store that in a way that you could find it later and pull it out. And it was really targeted towards people that did research or maybe librarians or people that just couldn't find what they needed and had a need to find it online. And that's where Bright Planet came in. So what, what might be a search that I would type into your platform? What, what would I be looking for and how would it work? Yep. So it was a lot different than what 
the internet became okay. because again this was pre Google which we're all familiar with yeah where so, you just type in and you, you you back then you probably had to type in specific commands whereas now Google's just like natural language well the other thing was at the time there was no index mm. of the internet so the only way to find things was to literally go out and look at them like if you couldn't use Google to look something up you would have to know where to go like to I would have up. to go to this archive and to this right database and I would have to access all these separate databases instead of somebody who's already done it for me. Exactly right. And you don't know those starting points. So there, I mean, at the time, there literally were books that had, that were written that had addresses of websites that had indexes yeah. or that had information. <laughs> right. You know, that was the old school Google. And so a lot of our clients at the time were people that needed a way to better manage that mm. info. So we would have, uh, I don't know, at our peak, we probably had uh, 1,500 or 2,000 databases that we had pre-programmed into our search tool that when you did a search, it was called federated search. When you did a keyword and hit the search button, it would go out to each one of those sources and ask it if it knew anything about your query and then bring that data back. Like so what, it's complete what might I search model. for? So in some cases, it was going to be, it might be something where it's competitive information or it might be uh, just simple research, like you're a scientist and you need to know what other um, articles were published around you know, this chemical or this particular mm. procedure. It did tend to be very uh, deep into the sciences at the time. There wasn't a lot of, like there was no use for you, Ben, to have access to this. Yes. There would just be nothing out there that you would ever find of value. Yeah, so I wouldn't uh, find like... Like these days I can go to untapped and I can research a beer. Right. Um, but back then that would have had right. zero. And value. that data wouldn't have even existed on. Yeah. Right, right. So it was the early adopters, a lot of the science, a lot of the government and those databases, while they were available, they were hard to use and people didn't know where they were at. So it was not for everybody. But that type of community potentially has, um, pocketbooks they can write checks they can sign contracts they can uh pay you and you can right. help build a company from that right like yep. a bar owner might not have been able to supply the uh the infrastructure that it was needed to create out that database but a medical community could be exactly and so a lot of our our clients were bigger bigger yeah. companies or government agencies uh we did a lot of work with even the state of south dakota through the library south state library uh, kind of like I said, anybody that had a, a reason to do research would be a potential client. And even at the time, we're not talking large dollar amounts. I mean, it might have been a few hundred dollars for a product. Mm -hmm. And this was before software as a service. So it was kind of a one and done. Oh, buy the product. And <laughs> you it. own it. You yeah. own it. Yeah. Terrible model uh, when you look <laughs> at it in, in retrospect. But so then we move on to the era of social media. And now how does Bright Planet dive into that because I think we look at this last election where we had Russian influence, where we right. had Cambridge Analytica, where we had people who were being manipulated by the data, um, or at least their data was compromised. Or maybe they go onto Facebook and they fill out some sort of fake survey mm -hmm. that then can be weaponized against them. So how does Bright Planet fit into that? Are you kind of like a Cambridge Analytica um, were you playing data mining into social profiles? We never did specifically that. Uh, we we did jump on probably a little bit too late into the so, some of the social media, but it, it was a, a wild west out there when mm. it came to those platforms starting to come out and people starting to want data from them. And a lot of money was put into the companies that did do a lot of that <laughs> mining. We did kind of what I would consider kind of light uh, social media monitoring, but... What ultimately happened was the companies with the biggest pocketbooks that could work out the biggest contracts with those social media platforms were able to get access to the data. And that's where we ran into problems, where they ran into problems with Cambridge Analytica, which was an up and coming company that we were familiar with in the industry, uh, but not to the extent that was learned later. But there were a lot of those kind of weird side deals. I know there was a story just the other day where they were talking about Facebook selling and sharing data with partners and I know one of the other big ones was Amazon uh, where they were able to strike a deal to get data that normally you and I couldn't get even if we approached Facebook to buy because they don't quote have it up for sale but mm. through their partners they have allowed those agreements to occur in the past now they say they don't do that anymore so time will tell so on that topic as somebody who's worked in data mining and knows the capabilities of the internet how do you approach privacy online 
do you look at oh using vpns at home do you worry about that kind of stuff or do you just assume everything you do is public and therefore you don't care yeah uh, it is a tough one i mean i i do think about it a lot uh but you're right i do have a, a good understanding of how the technology works and what could be private or should stay private and wouldn't stay private but i don't I don't worry too much about how I post things. Like I'm pretty open on on Facebook. You, you post a lot. I, I do, and yeah. and I and I have my pro, my profile set to public. Mm -hmm. And I and I think you had commented about this one other time too. It makes you think a little bit more when you post something. Absolutely, because I know it's going to be public. And like you just mentioned, I was over at One MC. So if people want to look me up, uh, they can go take a look at the things that I I was just talking about on past projects. But I always have that in mind when I am posting things like, oh, this is public. Anybody that wanted to could come take a look at it. And I think you it helps you self-filter. Mm. I think a lot of people do have a false impression of things like Snapchat or some of the instant story type things where, oh, they're just going to go away. It's like, well, yeah, kind of, but not. <laughs> well, and you and I, I mean, uh, I know we're some... We're some dashing, good-looking men here, oh, and lots of people are particular. looking for our, for our, our naked photos and stuff like that. But you know, if you don't, <laughs> you know, like I venture to say, you've probably not sent those pictures before. So then, therefore, then what we're talking about is you not going off the rails and talking about controversial topics that somebody right. could use against you. To oh, we can't have this guy on a board because look at what he said. The you've you self-filter that because you know that it's available to everyone. Absolutely. And and I am out there a lot. And yeah. I, I do a program on KDLT and on Wednesdays called Wired Wednesdays. And I like to promote that and encourage people to go watch it. But that does also mean that I'm tagging KDLT in stories and they themselves are going to be looking at that to say, sure. well, hey, who's this crazy guy? Oh, that's Will. All right, <laughs> yeah. we're good. But you're right. That, that helps to do that. So I think it helps to, to do that self-censored. And I don't use a lot of the private platforms like Snapchat. I mean, I have Snapchat, yeah. but I don't really use it a lot. And I don't partake in a lot of the, you know, here's what I'm doing for the next four hours or eight hours or 12 hours type platforms. Yeah. I, I do enjoy Instagram stories a bit, but again, with the understanding that anybody can follow me and can see it, you right. know, but yeah, the Snapchat thing, I, I don't believe in that privacy at all, but that reminds me of something else. So uh, we have put all of these smart devices in our house, and mm -hmm. that's a hot topic right now because, of course, when I say the word Alexa, and some of you might be listening on this, <laughs> and I might have just triggered Alexa. So Can I we guess, say something cooler? Then? Yeah, like, Alexa, play Gonna Make You Sweat by C&C <laughs> Music Factory. Um, so when when we know that Alexa is not just triggered by that mm -hmm. word, well, it is triggered by that word, but it's recording at all times, mm -hmm. and what makes it keep that snapshot or to actually come alive is when it hears that command. So what do you think about putting Google devices and all these things in our houses? Um, and how do you approach that in your house? Yeah, I get asked this question all the time. Um, I can safely say I've made more money off Alexa probably than anybody but Amazon. Yeah, from a, from a viral video yeah. and from, from some programming, right? Yeah. So, so uh, <laughs> tell me about what you, what you created there. <laughs> Um, and just keep in mind that we have not been flagged for profanity yet on this uh, podcast. So, do you want to start? <laughs> no. So you are, you're gonna have to bleep out that that word. I just lost audio. Oh, it's just uh, oh, gotcha. Your headphone jack here. Yeah. So I uh, right after Alexa came out, I, I did I bought one of the earlier versions. I was very curious as to how the technology worked, and I'm I'm always curious to see what's next. And this I thought was going to be something that was going to change how people interacted with their day to day lives. So I was one of, one of those guys that bought one of those first the first time they dropped the price. I wasn't willing to pay full price, but the first time they dropped price, I bought one, and I started messing around with it. And I just thought it was really interesting on how they married the backend data uh, kind of API connections with the individual devices. And I messed around a lot with that and just made her say stupid things just for fun. And, you know, I've got a couple of kids now. They're in high school at the time. They're a little bit younger. And I'm, I'm definitely not cool anymore. I'm in the <laughs> not cool phase. But that never really stops me from trying. And one day it was 28 degrees below zero out, you know, typical South Dakota winter. Nothing to worry about. It happens all the time. And I asked Alexa what the temperature was, and it was kind of, you know, she just said her normal thing. And I thought, well, let's, let's make her say something worse. I wonder what would happen if we, if we put a curse word in the data that I asked her to say. And so I did that. And it turns out she self-censors, so she bleeps the words okay. out. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that's funny. So I, I'm 
made a much longer version of her complaining <laughs> about the weather. And if you search uh, on YouTube, if you su search Alexa Sioux Falls, it, it should still be the number one video uh, that co comes up. It's only a 40 second long video. But then I, I'm like, hey kids, come come ask Alexa what the weather is. Wouldn't do it, you know, oh, you know, my daughter. Uh, Alexa, what's the poopy outside? You know, I mean, just yeah. standard stuff that you would get from a kid. So eventually she, I, I had to say the phrase and she did not think it was funny. But, <laughs> yeah, so Alexa basically is like, oh my gosh, it's so cold. Why in the F are you living around right. here? This is disgusting. I mean, a whole, a phrase of, uh, a whole phrase of expletives about like how terrible it is outside. Exactly. Yep. Something we all feel or <laughs> yeah. felt that day. And so I quickly just shot it with my cell phone, a video, and I thought, well, my friends on Facebook will find it humorous. Yeah. And I, I uploaded it. I was in a hurry. If you listen to the video, you'll hear some weird noise in the background. It's my 3D printer something, printing something. And I just uploaded it to Facebook, figuring a few find, friends might find it humorous. Well, they, for some reason, people started sharing it, mm. which they never share my posts. Uh, and it just took off. And it had like 250,000 views within wow. a couple of weeks on Facebook. Not which, monetized. Which is not monetized. Yeah. As far as I know, can't be monetized. It can when you're over 10,000 followers on a page and yeah. then you can do mid-roll ads. But anyway, you're <laughs> not there. This is on my personal page. That's right, yeah. So no monetization. And then a friend of mine reached out and said, hey, I want to share that with a friend, but they don't have Facebook. Can you upload it to YouTube? And I'm like, yeah, uh -huh. sure. So I uploaded <laughs> it to YouTube, not really thinking much about it because I, I had a channel, but there was no views as most channels are. And it just sat there for, I don't know, it was probably six months, maybe even a year. And it didn't do much. I mean, you'd get a few views here and there and every now and then get an email that somebody liked it or commented on it. And then last year, I think it was around uh, February, March timeframe, for whatever reason, it got picked up in the algorithms. And it spiked up and did uh, about 175,000 views a day. A day? Yeah, a day. <laughs> for probably six weeks. <sighs> and that pushed me over the threshold of when you can get into a monetized channel yeah. within YouTube. But then as soon as it goes over that threshold, it goes into something that they do, quote, hand vetting. I don't know if they actually are hand vetting them or if they just six-week... Um, wait period on it but it takes six weeks to go through that program well at this point the video is no longer getting 175,000 yeah. views for per day but it's still doing pretty good if yeah. you get uh 20 to 50,000 uh, but then i finally was able to monetize that channel and then over the last year it's kind of gone through ups and downs where sometimes it would get 50 to 100,000 views a day for three or four days and then it would drop off and tank again right now it's tanked so if everybody out there can go and watch my video, Revive maybe we get it, back share into it. the the algorithm. So so uh, the <laughs> so for instance, the total amount of views on that then are how many? It's million? over eight million. Eight million. Yep. So I don't know how transparent you want to be, but what does eight million views on a video translate <laughs> into wealth and fame? Tons of fame uh, and not too bad wealth. I mean, all things considered, forty dollar a forty second video that I shot on my cell phone to humor my children off a Alexa device that I spent $35 on. I don't know the exact money dollar amount, but it's probably around $4,000. Nice. Yeah. Hey, that's uh that sounds pretty fun. If I were in your shoes and I'm sure you did this, but I would I would be like, "Okay, what's my next piece of content?" <laughs> like stats. I would be uh I would be like, "Alexa, what's colors the sky?" I would have been doing all of those things all day to just try to get more more and more and more double down. Yeah. No, I did, uh, but I was never able to to recount Replicate the fame. That. <laughs> I and people would ask me for months because I, I became this kind of famous around Sioux Falls of the guy that made Alexa say something funny. Yeah. Everybody wanted to know how to do it. I'm like, how did you do it? How'd you do that? Yeah. And at the time, there was no easy way to do it. Now there is. Now you can just Google it, and I mean, there's a platform where yeah. it'll take you 30 seconds to to do it. It won't. It's no big deal at all. But at the time, you had to literally write some back end program that you'd have to host on a server or route through your local IP on your, your Midco router and then you know have it play back what you wanted to say. And it was just this very complicated thing. So I thought, well, I'll just record a video and once and for all, explain it to yeah. everybody how to do it and then point them to that video, knowing they're not going to make it through the first one minute because as soon as they start talking Python programming, yeah, they're right, gone. Right. And so I did do that. And that video, I don't know where it's at now, but I think that's done like forty or 50,000 views. Cool. So yeah. a few bucks off of How that many subscribers too. did you get, by the way? The funny thing is... you have like, to have uh, over 1,000 to be monetized. Yep, you do have to have over 1,000. And I think it was at the time 10,000 view hours, which is a lot yeah, of view 4, hours on a 40-second video. It's 4,000 <laughs> within a year. Yeah, each right. year. Yep. So the uh, the subscriber count was for every, um, it was 
so I've got I think it's just over eight thousand nice uh, subscribers, but it held very closely with the with yeah. the view count. That's pretty good. Well, we have a lot more things to talk about after the break because that same curiosity that you know got Alexa to say curse words has been a lot of other cool things that have been created over the years, and we're going to get into that right after the break. The presenting sponsor of The Lanyard is Ben's Brewing Company. We are a brewery, taproom, and speakeasy located in Yankton, South Dakota. Our beers are on tap in several South Dakota cities. Visit us online at bensbrewing.com. Good people drink Ben's beer. All right, we are back with Will Bushy. We had spent the first part of the interview talking about how you got to out of high school, how you got into technology, some of the early companies. We talked a little bit about Alexa. I love that we keep triggering people's <laughs> Amazon devices every time we say Alexa, that word. Alexa, buy Wired for Coding. <laughs> Wired for Coding. We might as well jump right into that. That was a book that you created. And uh, tell me about being an author and did you self-publish? How did that process go? Yeah, it's probably not the most exciting story, but uh, I can tell you that anyway. At the time, I, I was trying to figure out kind of what I wanted to do. You know, we were at a point in Bright Planet where I was very much affiliated. Bright Planet equals Will Bushy, and I, I didn't want that. You know, I didn't want to be associated as the entity uh, of the organization. And so I did like what most people do when they're self-reflecting on what they want to do. I started a blog. Mm. <laughs> so, so all the blog posts become a book? Well, no, it didn't because what happened was is I, I'm lazy. And so I, I figured three, 400 words is max that I would ever put on the blog. And so I would just write just stupid things about different uh, work things or entrepreneur things. And then I, I thought, well, I should write some things about my experience with hiring developers because I, over the years, had hired a lot of developers right straight out of college. I mentored a number of them. But those articles were too long. They were 800, 1,000 words. And I'm like, well, I can't, I can't post those on my blog because that's not what my people want. You know, all four of them wouldn't read it. And so I just stuck them away into a folder somewhere. And then, I don't know, uh, a couple months later, I, I, I was looking for something to post. I'm like, man, I got a lot of blog posts that are too long. I wonder how long a book is. And so I Googled how long is a book. And I had probably 80% of the way there. Huh. And I thought, oh, well, I'll just put it into a book. I mean, yeah. that's not that hard, right? And so I consolidated them up, uh, did some intros in, into the book and some conclusions, tried to tie it all together and kind of had this book. And then I, I went through it four or five times, just editing and moving things around. And it's just something that wasn't right. And I'm like, oh, it's just not something that's coherent. You know, it's a lot of good information. And I just kind of left it there. I figured, well, someday I'll run into somebody that knows how to do a book, uh, how to publish a book. And I ran into Jeremy Brown at a coffee shop. I don't know if you've had him down at all, but he's yeah, a, a publisher. Publishing. Yeah, he's a publisher up in Sioux Falls. He does a lot of more boutique stuff. And I never really knew what he did. And we just kind of got to talking. And I said, well, hey, uh, maybe you take a look at this book. And he says, yeah, send it over. So I did. And the next day he got back to me and he says, no, I think there's a lot of great stuff in here. Let's, let's just go ahead and publish it. And in his model there, you know, you do have to pay him to, you know, get the, uh, the artist lined up. But I mean, I keep all 100% of the ownership of it. So it's not your traditional book deal, but it's more of what I wanted anyway, because yeah. I, I didn't really want to give that up. I wanted to be able to have it be kind of my um, business card. You know, here's here's a book uh, right. written by yeah. me. You came down to events here in the past, like One Million Cups, and you were giving away books yep. and things like that. So it is a, a nice, like, yeah. I meet you and I never see you again, or you hand me a book and now I've got something, right. we've got a real connection. Yep. And I do a lot of mentoring with high school and college kids in the tech field. And it's a great way to, to give them something to kind of build a guide towards mm. how they could go down a, a good career path and have a good successful outcome out the back end. Because, you know, honestly, the, the school's uh, probably giving them advice that's beneficial to the school. And, you know, the parents probably giving them benefit, advice that's beneficial to the parents. You know, who's really giving them the beneficial advice of the guy sitting across the table that they're going right. to do that first interview? And so that's what the book is about. Uh, but it's been a lot of fun. I mean, I, I enjoyed writing it. I, I thought I would probably write a few more, but then never really got off uh, other than picking a title. I haven't really got any further <laughs> Wrote on that. So, so the second book is not coming out anytime soon. No, it's not. Yeah, I had some time last year where I really seriously thought about it. I wanted to do a, like a Wired for Marketing or um, you know, Wired for Design or something like yeah. that and collaborate with somebody in those fields, but never really got off the ground. 
Well, we have we I have a few topics here written down I want to get into. One that catches my interest right away. We were talking on the last episode with John Morgan about Bitcoin and about cryptocurrencies. People don't understand it. I don't really understand it, but you are, I think, a board member or an advisor with a company called Coin Lion mm-hmm. in Sioux Falls. And Coin Lion is what? Its own version? It's its right. own cryptocurrency? Yep. It still exists? Oh, yeah. So what's going on with that? How does it work? Why Why are we creating new currencies and then why are we having 10,000 versions of new currency? Well, I don't know if I can answer that. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so big currency or bitcoins, you know, cryptocurrency, uh, I would say probably has passed its peak. I mean, it was super popular there a couple of years ago. You saw a lot of coins coming online, which is known as um, initial coin offering, uh, I, um, ICO, very similar to an, uh, kind of a public offering where yep. they would they would spend a period of time between three and probably twelve months. They would gain. Uh, interest from investors that would pre-buy or buy the coins and then they would take that money and do something with it and then that coin continues to live on as kind of that investment and they did raise some money I don't remember off the top of my head I'm not sure it was public anyway on how much they raised but I mean it was a substantial amount of money and then what CoinLine is doing is they're building a dashboard to monitor your cryptocurrencies and then be able to keep track of the transactions that you make because there's a big problem right now of just and, and nobody honestly nobody knows the answer is if you were to buy cryptocurrency in 2018 and then sell it, uh, what is your tax liability? How does that get reported? You know, how are those profits going to be managed around and so on? Um, and there's still a lot of unknown. And, and if you're individually buying currencies all over the place, there's not you have to keep track of all that information. So how do you know mm. what your profit was or losses in the case of most recently uh, to be able to kind of collect that up? So they're building out a or they have built out a dashboard and it's it's gone live into beta here a couple months ago to start to manage that and then provide you with the audit trail of what your current your uh, crypto kind of portfolio looks like and what that audit trail is. Are you paid in cash or are you paid in CoinLion? I'm paid in CoinLion. So <laughs> in Lion. So what's the, what's the what's CoinLion trade at? Like how's that convert to a US dollar? Um right now not awesome. Yeah. <laughs> they right after their initial coin offering they they were up pretty high in all things relative, but um I haven't looked in a while, but I mean it's it's dropped significantly. Yeah. As well, most of them have. Yeah. Well, um, you can always ask them to pay in cash. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> um, so I want to talk about the startup world and the ecosystem that builds around it. And uh, you and I guess to some extent myself, we've we've been involved in this for quite a while of trying to support entrepreneurs. And I, I'd like to kind of avoid the cliche ideas of like, it's great. Every, it's a lonely business. Um, all those things. I would like to talk about what the state of entrepreneurship is in Sioux Falls and in South Dakota, why we have all of these organizations Mm -hmm. trying to support it, and what we need to do better. So there's three questions involved in there. What's the state of Mm -hmm. entrepreneurship in Sioux Falls and South Dakota right now? Yeah. Well, I mean, it is, it's always tough out there. I mean, it, it just is. And I, and like you said, uh, we both have been kind of trying to push the agenda to get more entrepreneurs and get more people involved. Um, I've kind of shifted my focus here over the last year. Uh, and, and I, I, I spend, I spend more time with high school kids and, and college kids trying to get them interested in entrepreneurship. Maybe not to say they're going to start a business or that they even want to start a business, but to just know what that means and what that is and that that's even a possibility. Uh, so I, we could talk a little bit about some of the things that I've done there, but but my sh- focus has shifted a little bit more away from what I had been doing before. Yeah, that which before was a lot of networking showing up at conferences that you personally might not have gotten a lot out right. of other than some inspiration. But you were showing up at all the conferences, mm-hmm. all the events, and you were supporting anybody in that world. So you shifted to high school because of why? Well, for one, uh, I was asked to come in and speak on a couple of them. So that got me interested in seeing what those kids were learning and doing. Uh, and I was really impressed. I, mean, I was just blown away with some of the things. My kids both go to a school called New Tech High mm-hmm. in, in Sioux Falls. It's part of a New Tech network. It's a project-based learning school. And one of the classes, this is their freshman algebra. Uh, Ms. Kuiper has the kids do a, like a Shark Tank type project where they have to pick a business one that doesn't exist today, um, 
figure out something unique about that that they could then build a prototype and quote run the numbers <laughs> to be a profitable business and so i start get, getting involved in that because my kids were involved in that and then at the end of the project she has the kids present to a team of sharks and i've yeah. been sharks for many years now uh, and i'm really blown away with some of the ideas that these kids come up with and of course the kids are made to do it right it's a school project it's not something they just did on their own um, but I was really blown away with that. And, and there's a small group of us that have just been impressed with what these kids can think of and do. And we want to f- help them out wherever we can and continue to promote that. Now, the kids in a lot of cases don't have an interest in going beyond the grade or going beyond the project that they were doing. But if we could, you know, if there's 100 kids that go through that program you know, in four years and we can spark the interest of two or three of them. And what we've heard from them and from the teacher is the feedback that we give is very relevant back to how they see things. Mm-hmm. So I think any time where somebody with a lot of experience can talk to somebody that's got an idea and try to figure out the problems that they're going to run into, I think we're all going to benefit from that. Now, it may not be that project that they're working on, but I think our best goal out of engaging with these students is that five years from now when they graduate from college or you know 10 years down the road after they've had a, a kid or two and decide they don't want to do the daily grind, back in their head, they understand what it takes to launch a business and it's probably not some uh, scary thing. Uh, so that's kind of been a little bit more of my shift in focus. You know, I still get involved on, on some of the more traditional entrepreneur type things, either events or mentoring. Well, you were here for businesses. like 1 million cups today, for mm-hmm. instance. And so you still do some of those networking events, but um, it, yeah, I've, I've shifted a bit too. I just, part of it I think is I just was excited to see that new people wanted to Mm-hmm. take on that mantle and, and do some of those events. And I needed to get back to running my own business and trying new things out myself, which right. I think you've done too. But um, let's talk about specifically then what you're doing with high school and colleges. You're doing mm-hmm. these coding camps, these boot camps. Mm-hmm. What do those look like? Who signs up for it? Yeah, I do a lot of kind of different things that, that focus on this. And some of them are through me and my brand, and some of them are just with others. So I mentioned the new tech. Obviously, I, I'm just helping out there. That's not, there's no monetization value coming back to me on any of those types of projects. Uh, a couple of months ago, I hosted a hackathon up at DSU. It was sponsored by AT&T. We challenged some of the students there. There was about 20 of them to build something cool and interesting and innovative for first response, first responders through the FirstNet platform. And that was a lot of fun. And And I know none of those projects are probably ever going to go forward, but it also was a great opportunity for me to stand up in front of these 20 kids. And I, I probably gave like five or six different presentations throughout the weekend of you know, stuff around entrepreneurship, stuff around public speaking. I did a long presentation on just Internet of Things to just get them interested in what technology exists out there today. And I think that that's probably what they're going to take away from those types of events. And then you mentioned some of the other, and again, that was just something that I hosted with DSU. And then I do um, Haxu Falls. We talked about that kind of at the top of the show here with the, the Simon Says, where I'm trying to get more kids involved in technology. And that has less to do with entrepreneurship so much as just, you, know, you can build whatever you want and it's not complicated. And there are people like me out there that will help you move that forward if you want to. Yeah, and so it's, are you trying to align them specifically with mentors then? Um, I should, but well, no. You're, you're trying to more like light a fire in them so that they yeah. figure it out themselves. I am. And a lot of it is I do inter- interact with a huge range of ages. So the youngest groups that we do are fourth and fifth graders. And then the on the older side of the kids anyway is going to be college students uh, well, at DSU. So one thing about programmer, programmers is that you know, if we're going to go by the numbers, it's white and it's male. And right. you specifically have gone after some groups who don't fit that. You've done a code camp for women, for girls. Is that right? Well, we've done some events for girls. I guess not a specific code camp. Uh, so just from a um, branding standpoint, so I, we, we used to run a thing called Code Boot Camp, which we were teaching adults on web development. But we okay. stopped doing that a couple of years ago. It was just... My joke is, is it's too hard to teach adults. So let me go back to, <laughs> to people that want to be there and want to learn. And uh, so we did that, and that didn't have any direct women affiliation. However, about 40% of the students, there were 15 of them, were women. 
So we had a big women contingency that joined those boot camps and they all went off and were developers. And I mean, from the program's perspective, I mean, it was a huge success. I mean, we just simply weren't able to continue it on with the time commitment and the amount of student signups. At the same time that we launched that, I started to do things around gaming boot camp where we teach kids to build video games. And that started just because I thought it'd be cool. And we have done a number of girls only gaming boot camps, which is probably what you were thinking there too. We, uh, we partnered up with the Girl Scouts a couple of years and we did some Girl Scout ones and we would have uh, you know, five to f- 12 or so girls do the build video games. And then DSU has their Gen Cyber Camp for girls each summer. And I always go up and teach one or two segments on, on that as well. But I, you know, honestly, give me a room of girls to teach versus a room of boys to teach. I'm going to take the girls yeah. all day long. I mean, they they love to engage and they follow directions. Um, they're very creative. Uh, a lot of times they just have never been exposed to it. And once they get into it, they just dive into it. It's just insane. You know, a lot of the boys, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of them that are really into it. But a lot of times, you know, back to what we were talking about earlier, man, those boys are not afraid to push buttons. Yeah. And, you know, one second you turn your back and you look back <laughs> and, you're, and they're like, it doesn't work. I'm like, what did you do? Oh, I added every single behavior and changed every single property on the entire uh, game and it won't work. I'm like, yeah, it's not going to work. <laughs> How do you debug something like this? And yeah. You try to roll things back out. But I, I really do have a big passion to try to get more girls and and you know, back to that um, like fourth and fifth grade that we do a cl- code club over at Sioux Falls Christian we have a low percentage of girls but the girls that do take it are just so engaged and they they really dive deep into it and they have a much stronger understanding at that age at the end of the camp than I think a lot of the boys do but okay so I want to dig in a little deeper on this topic because I wonder if it's just inviting mm-hmm young women to the table that makes a difference because if we were going to say we have a class and we can have up to 30 mm-hmm. people it's going to take that two or three young women who maybe have enough passion about it to to find their way into that class but by specifically tailoring it to and saying we want you we're inviting right. you to the table it seems like that in itself is the game changer it can be. You know, it's interesting because, and I don't know the answers at all, but I guess from my experience on what I've seen, you know, out there, uh, I've unfortunately heard fourth and fifth grade girls uh, say, oh, I didn't take Code Club because that's the thing for boys. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, what, says who? Where right. did you ever hear that? You know, why, what in our culture is already telling an eight to ninth, an eight-year-old, a nine-year-old, that coding isn't something that they would be interested in doing. And I don't know where that came from. I don't think it's just in coding. I mean, we, we've talked here about how we have a beer club. Mm. And if you look at our beer club, it's, a, it's you know, hop farmers, home brewers, beer enthusiasts. And you look at that room and you say, all right, we have 40 people show up to this and 35 of them are men. Yep. We are going to create a women's beer club, not because we don't think they're worthy to be in the main club, but because we want to invite them to the table and and somehow make it known that right. like no this isn't a boys thing this is we we want you to have your own experience too yeah and, and i've done that on a number of events like i mentioned with the code club we've we've run or the gaming boot camp we've run a number of them where that's you know it's girls this yeah. is the girls one and we don't usually have we don't usually fill them up unfortunately yeah. um but uh, we I think those camps are, the girls have a really good time and they have a completely different mood than the co-ed ones. But we also have the other problem, which is we might have 15 kids sign up and there might be one or two girls. Yeah. Well, they do at that age feel very awkward being in a room of just boys. And a lot of times they want to bail. And I've talked to a number of the parents. I usually try to reach out to them in advance and say, hey, you know what? I'm just telling you right now, she's going to be the only girl there. You know, it's not because we didn't invite girls, but if that's something she's not comfortable with, you know, maybe you don't want her to come. I'm I'm fine either way. I'd love to have her. Uh, But it is something that can be very awkward in those. And those that do come and stick it out and want to do it, do amazing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I would love to find more ways to engage more of those younger kids uh, into those programs. And another event that I did, and I thought, I always thought this was a, a really fun event, something I call Girls Breaker Day. And um, we haven't done one yet this year, but we did one the last couple of years where it's a girls only event. And we invite girls to come out and learn about technology by taking stuff apart. 
And I get a hold of Seam Recycling up in Sioux Falls. They bring over a pallet's worth of old computers that are going to be recycled anyway. And we hand the girls some safety glasses, some screwdrivers, and say, you know, have fun. You know, figure out what's inside this computer or bring something with you. Maybe you got an old radio at home that you want to take apart. Yeah. And that's been very, very engaging. And that's been a huge <laughs> success as well. And it's not that we're learning something specific. It's the, it's the demystifying technology. You know, and it's... Don't worry about breaking something. For one, it's already broken. Yeah. It's going to the recycle place. You can explore and you can figure it out. And we'll have girls that'll sit there for two, three hours just taking computer after computer after computer apart. Uh, one of the other things that I think is really cool about that event, I always invite the parents to all the events. I always invite parents. They almost never take me up on it. <laughs> but uh, I do get a number of moms that will come out for that event because it's kind of maker style where you come for a half an hour or whatever and leave. So it's not super structured. And so we will get a number of moms that'll stick around. And you'll hand them a computer and you'll, you'll, you'll come back five minutes later and all of a sudden the mom is in there taking the screws apart and the, and the daughter's just sitting there watching. <laughs> <laughs> Go grab another computer. It's like, here, mom, you can, you can yeah, do your, your own, own. Yeah. Uh, because I really want those girls to, to take those apart and figure out what's in there. You know, pull the stuff out that you think is neat, take it home, make a craft project out of it. Have you had an opportunity to work on trying to find minorities to be interested in this topic? Absolutely. So we do another program as part of our gaming boot camp. I've got I've had funding for about four years from AT&T to take that program out into the Native American community around the state. And we've been doing that with uh, one of my instructors. His name's Bobby Johnson. He's a Native American. He's a uh, uh, he teaches Native American studies at Roosevelt, and he runs that program for us. I mean, I do all the coordination and, and build the tech and so on, but he's the facilitator, and he goes out around the state each summer, and we'll take a bunch of laptops with him and sit down, and we'll do two or three day gaming boot camps for the Native American community, and we'll run a number of those in Sioux Falls as well just because of logistically they're so much easier to do than have him travel across the state Um, but we really feel important to to make that outreach and i'd love to see that program continue to grow and expand Uh, it's very tough to work in that community uh, around here we'll have you know 10 kids sign up seven will show up you know three won't be there on day two you know it's just this very different culture Mm -hmm. than what we're dealing with on some of the other camps Uh, but it's also so gratifying to go in and see them on that third day because on the first day they just think it's insane it's like we're not building video games we're just going to watch youtube or something i mean yeah. there's no way we can do that but once they see that they can i mean I, I think it's 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 a life-changing event for a lot of these kids to just see that this is totally doable and they did it in three days well and and you're starting you know is the the important thing they've never perhaps been invited Correct. and asked to be involved so again, just by starting, I think is, is the important step there. And I think that brings me to my next topic, which is that, so you've got a box full of widgets over there. You've messed around with Amazon. You've written books. You've been involved in the startup scene. You've helped start companies. You've worked at companies. You have kids. So there's a lot of stuff going on, and there's a lot of reasons to create an excuse and I, we hear it just all the time from people about how they don't have time to do things. And, you know, you're also active on social media. You're on KDLT. I could just keep going down this list of all the things. You came to One Million Cups today. So how are you doing it? What's the time management? What's the prioritization? Because do you know what I'm getting at? When, when you ask somebody why they don't get involved in something, it's always, I don't have time. Yeah. Well, you have the same amount of time in a day. So what's going on in your world? Yeah, no, I, I agree with you, and I, I hear it all the time, just like you do. Uh, I, I don't, I don't have any answers for you. I mean, I, I just do the stuff I enjoy doing, and the other stuff works itself out. Uh, and that's how every single project I've ever started has started because I think it's interesting, and I'll just go do it. Um, but you know, it, it is one of those things where there's always something else you could be doing. You know, the other thing for me personally is that I enjoy working. I, I work all day. I work. You know, I get up at seven. Um, I've, I've got the laptop up usually within two minutes. Uh, I'm doing something, whether it's for Market Beat or for one of my clubs or or just something that I'm interested in. You know, last night I was making a printed circuit board that I ordered from China because I've never done that before and it sounded interesting. It cost five bucks, so why not build that? Yeah. Uh, and then these camps, I mean, I've been super passionate about just wanting to get more kids involved in technology. And yes, they do take a lot of time. I mean, the Hack Sioux Falls project, it's six weeks and I'll spend four hours on a Saturday, 
over those six weeks plus probably 40 or 60 hours of just prep time on that. And it does take up a lot of time. But you know what? I've got all day Saturday and all day Sunday that I can dedicate to these projects. And that's what I end up doing. But I'm most excited when I'm building or doing something. I don't want to watch TV. I don't watch sports. Well, that's what I was going to say is that you know, for all these people who are too busy to do anything, you know, they know everything that's going on on Netflix right. and they know every player on every college basketball team, right? So I couldn't it, even name five college yeah. basketball teams. So it's not that that's bad, but it's also to say that there is time. You just have right. chosen different priorities, right? Yep. And so, but when you go to KDLT, that's, uh, that's bright and early. It is. So they like you there like at 6 a.m., 6.10, something like that. (laughs) And then uh, we'll go on at 6.20 or 6.40, kind of depending on where they stick in. The other thing is it seems like a lot of this is hobby work because I'm I'm sure KDLT is not paying you. Correct. Um, When you're doing work on the reservations or with the Native American communities, you're probably getting some funding, but not enough. No, I don't take any on any of that. You don't take any of that, yeah. So the funding goes them yep. and you know all of these things you're involved in you came down to one million cups today didn't get paid you're on mm-hmm. this podcast you don't get paid so so it's the Wait, curiosity i'm not getting paid oh <laughs> there's a nice uh, gift shop downstairs <laughs> to give you a voucher um but anyway it's just the prioritization and the hobbies well and, and we didn't even cover a lot of it here today but uh, i do a lot of volunteer work yeah. as well i was out at ja last week junior achievement and did the ethics uh, it was just a couple hours i love doing that program and i've got another one called be entrepreneurial that's coming up in may it's uh I think we're going to do three days, two hours a day with that one. Again, don't get paid for any of that. Yeah. I'm a director and president of Health Connect, a nonprofit here in Sioux Falls. Obviously, don't get paid for any of that. Sure. Uh, my wife volunteers over at Reach Literacy, and I help out a lot there. We haul a lot of books around for them just because they need it to be done. I don't get paid for any of that as well. But you take I'm, a lot of selfies with uh, a lot of reading, selfies. reading a book at Reach Literacy. <laughs> I've seen that. It's kind of like you've got these recurring social media mm-hmm. like brands. One is your daughter always covers her face mm-hmm. when she takes a photo because uh, she doesn't want to be on camera, <laughs> although I think that's just an act. Um, then you're always reading a book at Reach Literacy. Yep. You find these orange pens around town. You talk yep. about that. Um, yeah, it's you, you get a pretty good social branding strategy. But let's talk about Market Beat because sure. I looked at your LinkedIn profile last night, which I don't use LinkedIn very often. But I was surprised to learn you work for MarketBeat, which was a company started by Matthew Paulson. And, you know, one of the things I think we always heard from Matt was that, you know, he's a solopreneur. He wanted to do his own company, get crazy rich from it Mm -hmm. and build out this huge, massive email list where he's sending um, basically some market analysis to people who want to invest in the stock market. So I was really surprised to see that you're now a vice president with that company. So what are you doing? Yeah. So what happened was uh, in the process of kind of wrapping up Bright Planet entirely, you know, we, we made a good run at it 18 years. We weren't able to make the revenue that we needed to. Uh, a little over a year ago, probably almost a year and a half ago now, the decision was made to um, close it or sell it. And so 2018, I spent almost all year with those two objectives and I wasn't able to, to make the revenue and also I wasn't able to sell it. And so that meant we just simply needed to wrap it up. And so we're in the final phases of wrapping that up. What that means is, I don't know, it changes still on a day-to-day basis, unfortunately. Uh, So I had a lot of time kind of last year wrapping that up and then a lot of free time because if you've ever tried to sell a business, you'll kind of know there's a lot of free time involved on that, (laughs) uh, which allowed me to do some other things and to to reach out and do more things with the community. Uh, And then it became pretty clear here towards the end of last year that, you know, we were going to shut it down and and wrap it up. And there was no reason for for me to, to quote, stick around full time on that gig. And at the time, I've known Matt for years. I I knew Matt back when uh, MarketBeat was just a side project that he didn't know if it was going to get off the ground or not. And, And he was one of my good confidants here as I was trying to sell the business because you need people that you can turn to and talk to and trust and say, you know, hey, this is what's going on. You know, I... What do you think? Uh, his advice always was walk. I don't know why you're there. You're stupid. But um, that's Matt. Hey, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> and then as we, we came to the very, very end of that, um, Matt really wants to grow MarketBeat. And he spent a lot. He and I spent a lot of time together in 2018 through Zeal, but then also through the, the again, the mentorship here with myself through Bright Planet. And we kind of got to talking and, and he came to a realization that if he wants to continue to grow that business, you know, he does need to bring in more people. And... Uh, since we had that relationship, it, it, the timing kind of worked out really well. And so we, we sat down one afternoon and, and talked about it. And he's like, yeah, I, I think this makes a lot of sense. Let's, let's do this. 
And at the time, I was still kind of entertaining some of those acquisitions through Bright Planet. So I, I joined MarketBeat, but didn't make a big fuss about it online like I normally would on yeah. something like that because I didn't want that to taint anything that might be taking place. And so that's why most people didn't really see that transition. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, I saw that on LinkedIn or you mentioned that when I was talking. And they don't always know that yeah. right away. Uh, so yeah, I did start with uh, with MarketBeat. So what do you December. do? What, what is your role in the company? All the stuff Matt doesn't want to. Okay, so fix the printers. <laughs> fix the printers. <laughs> so my, uh, as you mentioned, the through LinkedIn, the official title is uh, vice president of um, of um, or kind of business uh, acquis or um, sales and business. Uh, Seems like you stuff. really got that down. Yeah, I nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> that fits. I'm trying to think of exactly what we said. Uh, no business cards. <laughs> right now, really spending a lot of time learning the business, doing a lot of the things that Matt just doesn't need to be doing and shouldn't be doing as part of it. You know, as you mentioned, he was kind of a solo entrepreneur for many, many years. He's run this business by himself for, for a long time and he's done extremely well at it. But for him to continue to grow that, you know, he needs to expand out and bring some additional people on board. So right now it's just a lot of uh, working with the business partners that we've got, doing a lot of the day-to-day -day stuff that Matt was yeah. doing, that Matt shouldn't be doing. How uh, many uh, how many subscribers are on this email list for MarketBeat? So our, um, our total list is, uh, I think it's just under a million. Wow. 990,000. So how many like emails that. does that translate to in a month or a year? Uh, last month we spent, we sent out, I think 58 million. <laughs> so what, is, so I have an email list here at the bar that's like 1800 people and I use MailChimp and when I send it out, you know, it goes pretty quick. Like I start getting <laughs> autoresponder things of like out of office today, but when you're sending out a million that's a bigger process, I assume. So that probably doesn't just go out in one chunk. Does it come out at different time zones? Like, for instance, if I was a subscriber in, in London, mm -hmm. uh, would you send out that email to me at the same time as somebody in Chicago? It depends a little bit on their subscription model, but the, unfortunately, the short answer is no. They're all going to get the email at about the same time. But you're right; it does. It's not instant. Obviously, it yeah. takes you know many minutes do to send batches, out. Right? Yep, in yeah. batches of them. But you could do smart campaigns right where it was delivered based on somebody's time zone we can fortunately for us all of the important information around stocks is going to be centered around the open and close oh, of sure. the stock market yeah, right. so we we have that benefit like all right it has to be delivered before 9 a.m gotcha because that's when the market opens yes it doesn't make sense to send it at 10 because in a way it's too, too late. late yeah yesterday's news well that's exciting it's always fun to see uh your friends and people taking on new challenges, new tasks. So, and also just thanks so much for uh, sharing all the details of some of the projects you're involved in. I know we missed a few and that's, what's I'm cool sure about you, Will. There's always, always something cool. Um, where can people find more about you? I know that you're on all the socials, but which one do you want to, to promote? Well, I, honestly, I, I don't spend a lot of time on the socials. What? I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I mostly use Facebook, to be honest. Yeah. I, I, I never really got into the whole Twitter thing. I mean, I've every now and again, I'm like, I really should do more on Twitter, and and then I don't. Um, so Facebook, like I said, my profile's open if people want to go check out my stuff or stalk me. Uh, if I don't know yet, probably won't accept the friend, so you're on your own there. And then go to YouTube and search for yeah, Alexis Who Falls. Yeah, that video, yeah. And, and I don't... I looked a while ago. I don't remember what it is, but if you want to look at, up any of the projects that I mentioned, if you search my name, you know, in Google, I'm I'm like the first five or six pages of Google. They're almost all me, so I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. Yeah, well, it's nice to know that uh, Google is googling your name gets you. <laughs> well, thanks a lot for coming to Yankton, and uh, we'll talk more soon. All right, thanks, Ben. Thanks again for listening to The Lanyard. We're again on all podcast platforms. We appreciate you sharing it out to people who would get value out of this. Give us a review on iTunes. That really helps. Also, remember, we have another podcast just for a limited time. It's called Three Ravens, and it's all about Game of Thrones. It's been a lot of fun. I have a couple co-hosts on that. We have a guest co-host, and we're breaking down each episode as we count down this final season. You can search for that. It's called Three Ravens. I'll be back next week with another interview with somebody creating a cool company or a cool community. Thanks for listening. 